This semester, we are doing a series where we are looking at questions that Jesus asks. And he asks a lot of questions in the Gospels. The Gospels record about 290 questions. Some of them are repeats. Some of them are in stories. But he asks these questions. And um, as we've said each week, one of the powerful things about questions is they do something to us. That if we let somebody's question search us and we actually take it seriously, uh, it will take us places that we wouldn't have gone necessarily on our own. Um, questions are a vulnerable thing to, to receive one and to let it search us. And so that's what we're doing this semester is we're, we're, um, we're letting Jesus ask us questions, questions that he asks in the Gospels. So this summer, I spent a lot of time at the pool with my children. Uh, my children, if you haven't met them, Leo turns eight on Friday, and he's in second grade. Mary Landon is five. And, going on 19. She's in kindergarten. And George is one going on, I don't know, bulldozer. And he's, uh, and so we spent a lot of time at the pool this summer. And um, it's been an interesting process to watch my children learn how to swim. Um, So Leo started the summer when he swam, he looked like he was drowning. And he joined the swim team. And so now he actually looks like he's swimming when he swims, which is a big improvement. Um, And George, when we're at the pool, he will just walk up to the edge Smile and just step off, <laughs> hoping that someone will catch him. And it's this beautiful, like, I don't know, I don't know what's going through his head. I think it's just the assumption that I will be caught, or I don't know what water is, or you know. But he he steps off. And Mary Landon is right. She's in the middle. She's in between. And um, this summer, as we're, we're trying to teach her how to swim, she 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 was scared to jump. And so I would, she would sit, stand on the edge of the pool, and I would stand maybe five feet on the water and tell her to jump to me. And she was scared. And um, like I promised her that I was going to catch her. And, and what we do, she, I'd catch her, and then I'd have her jump, and I'd take a, a couple steps backwards so she'd have to swim to me. And um, I'd ask her if she'd trust me, and she would like, yes, no, you know. Um, sort of trust, sort of not, but this fear mixed with this doubt, there's some trust in there. And it's so interesting to watch George and Mary Landon side by side at the pool because faith is the default, right? You look at a one-year-old and the willingness to just step off the edge and know he's going to be caught, even when we catch him and we submerge him underwater so he can learn to hold his breath. He comes up and he thinks it's the greatest thing and he does it again. Like the faith is the default. But for Mary Landon, this, something's happened where somehow, somewhere along the line, she was taught or she learned from someone or something to doubt, to not trust, that somehow fear became the, the governing emotion, not faith. Um, and so the question from Jesus that we have tonight is one that he asks Peter, uh, one of his disciples. He asks him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So we're going to read from Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. It's up there. It's put on your bulletin. You can follow along there. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. Immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. So as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to see, try to look at three things. And this is the outline that's on your bulletin if you want to take notes. Uh, we'll look at the context of our doubt, the experience of our doubt, and the answer to our doubt. So first, the context of our doubt. Um, this story we, it starts with immediately. And right before this, Jesus um, had just learned that his first cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. Uh, King Herod had, had beheaded John the Baptist. Um, and then John the Baptist's disciples came and told Jesus this. And then they are off in this desolate area around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the crowds see Jesus. They know he's there and they come to him. These, these hordes of people, 5,000 people plus women and children come and they have nothing to eat. And so Jesus takes a few loaves and a few fish and he blesses them and, and he feeds this large crowd of people. And then he sends his disciples off um, onto the sea and he goes up the mountain to pray. And so the Sea of Galilee is where this takes place. And it's not a large, um, not a large lake. It's, it's, it's a large lake. It's not a large sea. It's about eight miles wide and 12 miles across at its widest parts. You can see one side from the other. Uh, at its deepest parts, it's about 200 feet deep. And the hills surrounding the sea are about uh, 1,400 feet above sea level. And then the sea itself is 700 feet below sea level. So looking out over the Sea of Galilee would be similar in terms of elevation if you're on Pilot Mountain and you're looking out over the view. That's about the same elevation distance. Being able to see about 8 miles, 12 miles out, except instead of land, it would be the sea. And so um, this, the geography of the Sea of Galilee produces these incredible storms. These surprisingly furious storms will, will just come up on the sea because of the, the geography. And so it was not unusual for people to get caught up in storms without warning. So the disciples get into the boat, they begin to sail, and then they row across the sea from where they are to where they're going. About a five-mile journey. And about halfway, in the middle of the sea, the wind kicks up and begins to churn this froth of waves. And so there they are. They're stuck in the middle of this big lake being beaten by the wind and the waves for about nine hours. And the word for beaten here in verse 24 could also be translated as tortured or harassed. And so I want you to get in your mind what kind of storm this is that they are in. Um, I remember one time in college, I was flying home for a break and we hit turbulence in the airplane. It might have been 45 minutes of turbulence, but that was like, I, you know, 45 minutes of turbulence on the plane is a lot. It's a long time. This is nine hours, and they're in an open boat on, on water. This is a long, awful, uncomfortable, primitive boat three miles from the shore, and just this constant beating of wind and waves against the men, the men in this boat. And in the ancient Near East and in the Bible, in, in their imagination, these people... The way they thought about the sea was that the sea was the place of chaos. The sea represented for them um, chaos and unrest. It was, you were unable to see the bottom. That's where sea monsters live. There's this real sense of this is dangerous and, and this is unknown. And the wind, like the sea, was uncontrollable. 
and its source was unknown and unknowable. And so in this story, we have the sea, which is uncontrollable and its depths unknown, getting grabbed by the wind, which is um, unseeable and its source unknown. And it whips the waves and that tortures and beats down the disciples in their boat. And I think for us, um, like the disciples, we often are assailed by wind and waves. We often have this experience of this, this berating, this, that we don't know the source and we can't see the depths. So how are you being beaten down right now? Um, what in your life feels like a storm? How are you experiencing the chaos of churning waters that you can't see the bottom of and that are out of your control? So for freshmen, um, your chaos is probably found in the newness of things here. Right? You feel it socially. One upperclassman was telling me that you're able to tell a freshman in the pit because they're, they're always looking around, looking for someone who sees them, looking for a friend to sit with. Um, this, this social unrest. And freshmen, we, we've all been there. Everyone else has been there and felt that. Um, maybe you're feeling it academically. The, 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 you're, you're hitting the first round of papers and tests. Um, when you saw the syllabus at the beginning of the semester, it was like the calm sea. It was unknowable. You couldn't see the bottom, but it was calm. But now that the wind is of, the, of the deadline is starting to pick up on the syllabus, you're feeling the, the storm begin to churn up. Sophomores, for many of you, um, you have created your own chaos as you've attempted to do everything on campus. Right? You want it all, so you're burning yourselves out on trying to do everything, whether it's three different ministries or trying to participate in three different social groups while choosing your major and getting in shape and being a good friend, and you're supposed to do it all with a smile. Right? And on top of that, you feel the social and academic chaos of being a freshman. And juniors, uh, your, your chaos this semester might be a new chaos. Maybe you feel like you don't fit in with the seniors or the sophomores. Many of your classmates are abroad, so you're trying to figure out who you are apart from them. And everything in your life is leveling up right now, right? Your expectations for you are leveling up. You're, the need to get a good GPA because you're taking classes in your major, you're feeling that pressure. You're, you're hearing murmuring of how the next summer's internship is supposed to be the big one, and so that's leveling up. Every, everything's leveling up. And seniors, you have a new chaos this year. You're feeling the winds of next year whip your sea into waves. Right? How do those words next year sound? Right? You just feel, you can start to feel the chaos with that. Um, they are unknowable and they're uncontrollable. But you're told to control it, right? You're, you're told that you need to have everything in order and be able to control what's going to happen to you as you head into next year. Your applications, your interviews, but you can't control it. And y'all, there are so many more storms. So many more storms. What about your family dynamics back home? And the, the storm of, uh, of that. Um, what about on our campus? The, the reality that a number of professors have received these these racist emails um, and have, have caused them to live in the fear of, of um, uncertainty that, that that has produced. And if you poke your head outside of Wake Forest, just for a second, right, you'll begin to feel the wind and the waves of our political division, the immigration crisis, climate change protests, turmoil in the Middle East. There are a lot, there's a lot of chaos. There are a lot of wind and waves. And for the disciples in this passage, their doubt is their response to seeing the wind and the sea against them. It's these storms that are the context of our doubts. The wind and the waves, the churning of the unknowable and uncontrollable depths whipped up 
by the invisible and uncontrollable winds that are the context of our doubts. Because what happens to us in our storms? Like if you found yourself in any of the stuff that I just listed, what happens to you in that? The anxiety that comes, the confusion that comes, the questions that we begin to ask in those places when we feel those storms, questions about God, is there a God? Is God actually good? And I'd say most of us don't ask these questions out loud when we feel them because we fear that that would create a storm of its own. If I were to say what I'm thinking and feeling about who God is and his goodness, what, would, what kind of storm would that create? But just like the disciples in the boat, who just before this saw Jesus feed 5,000 people and women and children with just a few fish and bread, just like them, we are so quickly overwhelmed with fear and doubt. But in the midst of these waves, while this is happening, they see someone walking towards them on the water, And their first thought is this must be a ghost and they're terrified. And this word terrified literally is this um, this word that means that they experience acute mental distress and they scream in fear. They are beat down, overwhelmed, tired, scared, and then there's a ghost. I don't watch a lot of horror movies. I'm not a horror movie guy. Um, But it seems like in all the previews that I see, and so I'm assuming the movies too, there's at least one scene in every horror movie where they zoom in on the person who's scared Right? And you see them experience the horror while they see the thing that's terrifying them and they scream out with this like blood-curdling terror. That's what's going on here. Like That's the strength of the words in this. That the, the disciples are on this boat and they have terror when they see Jesus coming because how else would there, I mean, what else would explain someone walking in the middle of a storm? It has to be a ghost. And I hope this encourages you because um, this really encourages me because this is how I feel in the midst of a storm. And I'm encouraged that I'm not the only one. I'm encouraged that I'm not the only one. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, um, writes a bit about storms. And he says that most often the storms of life come upon us as the unavoidable consequence of living in a fallen, troubled world. He says the world is filled with destructive storms. But regardless of how storms enter our lives, whether they are our fault or not, Christians have the promise that God will use them for their good. He writes, when God wanted to make Abraham into a man of faith who could be the father of all faithful on the earth, God put him through years of wandering with apparently unfulfilled promises. And when God wanted to turn Joseph from an arrogant, deeply spoiled teenager into a man of character, he put him through years of rough handling. He had to experience slavery and imprisonment before he could save his people. Moses had to become a fugitive and spend 40 years in the lonely wilderness before he could lead. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is a result of our sin, but it does teach that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. Storms can develop faith and hope and love and patience and humility and self-control in us that nothing else can. And countless people have testified that they have found faith in Christ and eternal life only because some great storm drove them toward God. The first chapters of the Bible teach us that God did not create the human race and did not create the world for suffering, did not create it for disease or natural disasters. He didn't create it for aging or for death. Evil entered the world when we turned away from God. And God has tied his heart to us in such a way that when he sees the sin and suffering of this world, his heart is filled with pain. And that in all of our affliction, he is afflicted too. Friends, God is not like 
the casual chess player who moves pawns around the board. Through Christ, he is your father in heaven who loves you. And along the way, as the storms rage in our lives, as we're berated by wind and waves, three things happen to us. First, we assume that we're in it alone. Then we have a hard time recognizing Jesus with us in the storm. And then we begin to doubt. And like Peter, when I take my eyes off of Jesus and instead I focus on the storms around me, I begin to sink in my doubt. A friend of mine, um, a guy named Mike Ford, who's a campus minister with RUF, uh, he told me a story about a student that he met with over the years. And they would get together regularly, and then one time the student said to Mike, he said, you know, I feel alone in my fear and my doubt. I feel like God has abandoned me. And Mike replied to him with a little bit of anger, um, but love replied to him, that's BS, because I am here right now. I'm with you. And what about last week when you came over to my house because you were struggling? Who sat with you? I did. I was with you. God is with you through me. And if you feel like you are alone in your storms, um, share them with someone. Be honest with someone. Let someone be with you in the midst of your tempest. Let them point you to the one who by faith is with you always, Jesus There's an old hymn about this story. Um, One of the lines goes like this. It says, When the storms of life assail me and my vessels tempest-tossed, with the world arrayed against me, all my hopes seem crushed and lost. There is one who never forgets me, one who hears my faintest cry. He has promised that he'll keep me as the apple of his eye. So the disciples cry out in fear, and immediately Jesus responds. And his response is, do not fear, take heart, it is me. And in the midst of our fear, both real and imagined, God speaks. And the refrain of God throughout the Bible to his fearful people is the same. Do not fear, for I am with you. His refrain is constant. Do not fear. To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to Israel in the wilderness, to Israel as an established kingdom, and to Israel in exile, God's refrain is constant. Do not fear, for I am with you. We see this most clearly where we see all beautiful things in Jesus on the cross. Because as Jesus went to the death, he was terrified. His best friends abandoned him and betrayed him. He knew that he was headed to his death and that his death would both be excruciating and lonely. Jesus stepped into the chaos of failure and he was terrified. And he went to that place of terror to secure for you the comfort of his father so that his words to you, his do not fear, would not be cheap. This isn't an empty, everything is going to be okay. Jesus experienced the terror of hell on the cross so that he could say to you, do not fear, and have the full weight of heaven behind it. And hearing these words from Jesus, take heart, take heart, it is I, do not fear. Hearing these words unlock something in Peter. One commentator writes that the hot coals of faith are glowing inside him and he needs just one more good gust of the winds of the spirit to carry him into action. Peter, like us, just needed a bit more reassurance that he's encountering the holy and not just playing tricks in his own mind. And he speaks out of faith to Jesus. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus responds with this simple word. He says, come. And then Peter is off and running. He gets out of the boat walks on the water, this is all he needs to go to Jesus. And this leads us to our third point. 
the answer to our doubt. This passage tells us to do one thing to answer our doubts, to answer these doubts that come up in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of the waves and the, and the wind. It tells us to look at Jesus. Because when, Jesus, when Peter's gaze is fixed on Jesus, he walks on the waves, right? The waves are still raging. The storm is still howling, but he is walking on it. And often when we're in the midst of our storms, I think we we pray for deliverance. We pray for the storms to end. We ask for God to change our circumstances. But look at Peter here. He fixes his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith, and he walks on the storm. The unknowable and the uncontrollable cannot sink him when his gaze is fixed on Jesus. But then Peter sees the wind. He looks away from Jesus and he immediately drops into the sea. And as he slips beneath the waves, he lets out this strangled gasp, help. And Jesus immediately grabs him and pulls him out of the water and speaks to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I think the way that we hear this question reveals something about us. And how do you think God responds to your little faith? What, what do you think God has to say to you when you feel yourself sinking beneath the waves and all that you can mutter is a, is a strangled help. How do you think Jesus responds to you in this? The Bible doesn't tell you that the reason you are in the storms is because you're not trying hard enough. The Bible actually rejects the, the toxic positivity that we hear so much in our culture right now. The, the stuff that says the way forward is to believe better. You gotta look on the bright side. Stay positive, good vibes only. That's not what Jesus does. Look at how the Bible answers Peter's failure to keep his eyes on Jesus. Like Peter cannot do it. He starts to drown, he cries out for help, and Jesus grabs him, and then he asks him this question. Jesus cares enough about Peter that he wants Peter to figure out his own doubts. Jesus is secure, right? We see this in here, that Jesus will not let Peter reach the bottom of the sea but he grabs him so that he might have the space to really figure that out. Why, why do I doubt? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? A friend of mine told me uh, a story recently. He said he was, he was reading with his, the Bible with his kids at breakfast one morning, and they're reading the story of the Exodus. And if you're unfamiliar with it, it's the story in the Bible when God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses. And the way that he leads them out is that he splits the Red Sea so that there's two huge walls of water. The wind um, blows all night to blow the, the, the sea into a wall of water, and then God's people pass through the sea. And as he's talking about this with his family, um, he said they started asking the question together, what would it have been like to walk through the sea? Like, what would different people be doing as they walk through the sea? And so his kids, who are five and three, were talking about this, and they were saying, well, maybe some um, put their hands in the water as they walk by. Right? They walk by, you know, like as you do when you walk by the railing, walk by with their hands in the water, like looking up at the wonder. Look what God is doing, that he's rescuing us. Um, some might have just run as fast as they could, racing each other through the parted sea. Um, some probably closed their eyes and hid down, terrified that the, the walls of the waves were going to crash down on them scurrying through, um, not believing. There's some who were probably carried, who because of their age or their injuries were picked up and carried through the parted sea. 
I think it's, I think we are in a space here at Wake where it's tempted then to ask the question, well, whose faith is the strongest? Who had the least doubts? And y'all, it doesn't matter. God saved all the people who walked through the sea that day. The ones who walked through with joy and wonder and the ones who walked down, walked through with their, their eyes closed and their ears plugged. A weak faith in a strong savior saves. No, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. Look at Jesus, the one who on the cross was overwhelmed by the chaos of sin and judgment so that in his resurrection, he could conquer the chaos of this world and calm the raging sea inside of you. He's the only one who can stand amidst your chaos and call you to himself. Look at him. He's the only one who can save. And he deals with your doubts by giving you himself in love. I want to close just going back to the pool this summer with Mary Landon as we're, we're um, when I'm teaching her to jump, teaching her to swim, and she's standing on the edge of the pool, jumping off, or rather not jumping off because she's terrified of the shallow end of our neighborhood pool. And I asked her, why are you so scared? Like, Mary Landon, why are you scared? Why don't you trust me? And her answer was, I don't know. She couldn't answer that question of where her fear came from. And do you know how she got over her fear? How she braved the terrors of the shallow end in her neighborhood pool? She looked at me and she jumped. And I caught her. Friends, how much more will your father in heaven, who has given you what is most precious to him, his son and his spirit, how much more will he catch you when you jump? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this story, and Lord, um, thank you for these friends in this room, and um, Lord, all the chaos that they experience right now. Jesus, thank you that you give us this story, that we see that you are one who has conquered the chaos, or that you actually bring peace in the midst of our storms, and Lord, I pray that you would do that. Would you lead us into your peace? Show us yourself that we might have peace in you.